with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, the IMF has released its latest world economic outlook. The fund left its global growth forecast for this year unchanged at three percent, and China has published a white paper on the achievements of the Belt and Road Initiative over the past ten years. And now let's begin with our top story. The IMF and World Bank are meeting in Morocco as they debate the global financial reforms, and there are two key economic reports that have been released. CGTN's Wuchi Okanko has more from Marachi. The sprint back to pre-pandemic growth levels still remains elusive, as the global economy continues to limp along. That was a grim message from the IMF as it released its World Economic Outlook report at its annual meetings in Marrakech. Its forecast for global growth remains well below the historical average of 3.8%, slowing to 3% this year from 3.5% in 2022 and falling even further to 2.9% in 2024. Important divergences are appearing. The slowdown is more pronounced in advanced economies than in emerging markets and developing economies. Among advanced economies, the U.S. has been revised up with resilient consumption and investment, while the euro area has been revised down as tighter monetary policy and the energy crisis took a toll. There is divergence also among emerging markets and developing economies, with China facing growing headwinds, while Brazil, India, and Russia are revised up. Throwing even more uncertainty into the mix is the escalation of violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Already, the Russia-Ukraine conflict caused major commodity markets to fragment. Even more geopolitical tensions could make matters worse. And yet another risk could see developing nations hit even harder, causing inflation to rise and triggering knock-on effects to monetary policy. I think uh, we have to be cautious. I think it's too early to really assess what the impact might be. And as you pointed out, of course, this happened after uh, our round of uh, current projections was, was closed. Um, but we would have to, uh, to wait a little bit before, uh, before seeing what the impact uh, might be. Of course, we, uh, we all hope for a rapid de-escalation of the conflict and end to the violence. Inflation still remains the itch that no one will be able to scratch, at least not in the medium term. While headline inflation has come down from multi-decade highs in 2022, the fund says measures to stem its rise are proving sticky. All in all, most countries are not expected to return to inflation target until 2025. Taken together, our projections are increasingly consistent with a soft landing scenario, bringing inflation down without a major downturn in activity. Well, all eyes now turn to monetary policy. The recent move by central banks to tighten rates in an effort to reduce inflation is expected to cool economic activity going forward. But the IMF says, with risks to the outlook tilted to the downside, there's little margin for policy error. 
And that was Uchi Okanko from Meraji. For more on this, join us on the line now at Yan Liang, Professor of Economics at Willamette University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So Yan, first of all, the latest World Economic Outlook says the global growth for this and the next year remains quite below the historical average of 3.8% from the year 2000 to the year 2019. So are we entering into a new normal of slower global growth. Right. Good to talk to you. So I think um, there are both structural and cyclical factors that contributed to the low growth rate uh, for this year and the next, and also in their medium term um, sort of forecast. So in terms of the most recent economic headwinds, um, the IMF uh, included things like, you know, monetary tightening to fight inflation, the Ukraine war. Um, trade fragmentations, um, the rising geopolitical tensions, and also the resurgence in inflation. So all of these, I think, clouded the uh, global economy, and that's why they forecasted the GDP growth rate only at 3% this year, um, and that was further slowed down to 2.9% in 2024. And going forward, I think they also mentioned factors like uncertainty, geoeconomic fragmentation, low productivity growth, and also um, the sort of dissipating demographic dividends. And all of these would contribute to the slower growth in the medium term. So again, uh, I think a lot of things are still uncertain at this point, um, including the new you know, regional conflict in the Middle East. So I think it's still hard to tell um, if the economy is going to have a further you know, slowdown. Um, but again, I think um, there, there are other factors that could be in place. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, in terms of you know the policy maneuvers, both in um, Asian economies and also in Europe, um, in in um, the United States as well. Mm-hmm. So Anna, so what do you think are the main factors for today's global economy? Well, I, I think one factor is that uh, the IMF and the World Bank are using old metrics, and the we've had quite a change in um, the, the way that the world operates. Uh, the information revolution, the digital revolution, has bypassed. Uh, basically, the the way that they measure um, productivity uh, and uh, economic activity. And you're seeing a real trend with the advanced economies. Uh, This year, it's going to be about 1.5% in 2023. So they're actually going to be a drag, a massive drag on world growth. And that's going to further decrease to 1.4% in 2024. There is a continuing trend line that we can all see, and that is... um, developed countries are no longer uh, competitive. Uh, You start looking at Europe, the cost of energy um, and wages have basically priced them out of the market unless, you know, there's a tremendous amount of automation and even then the energy costs uh, tend to uh, do you in. And and we've seen uh, companies are just, you know, fleeing uh, Germany in particular because they cannot be competitive uh, versus their uh, competition. So um, I do think that Um, things are changing that we keep saying or the central banks keep talking about inflation. I don't think they truly grasp the fact that the wage inflation is not going to be affected by rate increases. It's not like, um, you know, nurses are going to get paid less because they increase the rate. And that seems to be the hard part of inflation. You see this in the United States with the United Auto Workers, you know, they're asking for 40%, even if they only get 30%. 
uh, you're still, that's an inflationary amount. It's not connected to any kind of productivity and it's gonna make the US car industry even less uh, competitive than it already is. Aina, mm-hmm. uh, so the IMF said that, uh, you know, the slowdown is more pronounced in advanced economies than in emerging markets and developing economies. So could you explain it further? Why is that and what's the trend? Well, there's there's a new economic paradigm, and as I said, the uh, you know it's it's about a digitalization, bringing costs down, bringing productivity up, and you you just haven't seen that. Uh, what what has been the response in Europe uh, and America? It certainly hasn't been automation. Uh, China has been leading the world in terms of the number of machines uh, bought and installed uh, for the last eight years. Uh, it, it continues to uh, drive national policies that are embracing uh, digital 4.0. This is the way in which you can make uh, your factories much more um, competitive by reducing costs. Uh, they're do- continuing to do cluster development. You just don't see that happening in the US. Instead, uh, in Europe, instead they keep talking about, well, let's subsidize some industries. But you know, we've seen the results of these subsidies uh, already uh, you know, in, in chip production, uh, a chip made in the US versus the exact same one made in Taiwan. Is it going to be 30% more? And that's the latest estimate. It could go higher because they're experiencing significant delays due to uh, construction, not timelines, uh, also lack of skilled labor. Um, And that's only going to be compounded because the group that uh, designs a factory is quite different from the group that runs a factory. And getting all that, uh, um, you know, in order is going to be quite something and and a tremendous amount of cost to this. So uh, right now you see a developed world, which is less competitive. You see a developing world, which has greater needs in terms of everything from debt relief to uh, still tremendous amounts of infrastructure are, are necessary. You know, you look at places like Africa, less than 50% have access to um, you know, um, electricity, uh, paved roads. 6% uh, of the land, uh, arable land is is um, that is being farmed is actually irrigated. So there are tremendous amounts of th- of things that are moving in different directions, but as I said, not being recognized very well by the uh, current uh, economist uh, group. Uh, so yeah, inflation remains a headache, and so in a lot of countries, so all eyes now turn to the monetary policy. So what do you think about the recent moves by the central banks in the U.S. and Europe to tighten the interest rates? Why is the inflation so sticky, and where is the risk of economies raising, you know, the interest rates by too much? Will it stifle the growth for the years to come? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I agree with Aina that I think inflation has many other factors than the factors that you could um, cure by hiking interest rates. Um, So I think more and more research has found that, you know, the old sort of the traditional diagnosis of inflation, which is basically wage price spiral, simply did not apply um, for this time. Um, A lot of the you know, price increases have to do with supply side factors, be it, you know, supply chain disruption, being inefficient um, reshuffling of the supply chain, or, um, you know, what uh, have, have some people have argued um, has to do with, you know, corporate 
pricing power um, and the increase in their profit margins uh, where companies simply have the market power to raise prices and so on and so forth. And added to that, uh, in the United States, um, there's the United Auto Workers strikes, there's also medical worker strikes. Um, all these could fit into the higher prices. Um, and in Europe, as we know, um, it has a lot to do with energy costs. So none of these factors are really the demand side factors, and none of these are really can be um, sort of suppressed um, by hiking interest rates. Um, and in the, in the United States, um, I think there's also more complications here, which is when you hike the interest rate and when you will have a, a very large federal debt out there. Um, right now, according to the Congressional Budget Office, um, the United States government is paying uh, $663 billion of interest payments. Um, so think about this. This is $663 billion of extra income that the federal government is handing out to the private sector um, for those who hold the government securities. Um, so that would definitely add to the demand side and fuel inflation, and it's not an equitable way either um, because this income mostly goes to the rich um, that um, that have the um, treasuries. So I think, um, you know, a lot of these sort of the efforts are basically barking on the wrong tree. Um, I don't think hiking the interest rate is going to help to really deflate the economy. Um, and it could also undermine the long term prospect, as you just mentioned, um, because companies, when they're thinking about long term investments, that interest cost um, is going to make them think twice. Mm. So, Aina, what do you think about the U.S. budget crisis and the debt issue? Some media reports say that the Wall Street is not confident it can handle all of Washington's bonds. So how do you see that? Well, I mean, uh, right now they're anticipating, Deutsche Bank put out a report that they anticipate $1.3 billion in uh, new Treasury offerings. Now, here, here's the problem. The, the U.S. economy, if it wasn't the U.S., would be called a Ponzi scheme. So this year alone, they will add $2 trillion to the, you know, $31 trillion that they had at the beginning of the year. That puts it to $33. You've already heard, Jan, talk about the increased amount is that it's going to pay uh, for, uh, you know, this debt service. Uh, now, do the math. <laughs> the U.S. is borrowing money to pay the interest on money it's borrowed at the same time that it's increasing the total amount of debt. So if, if, I, if, if this was an individual, uh, I would have been cut off a long time ago. If the IMF was coming into another country that was doing this, they would say this is an absolute disaster. Uh, this economy needs to be completely retooled. Uh, you're, you're living in a fool's paradise. Yet, because it's the United States, everyone, quote, accepts that, except when you hit that watershed moment when the world economy says, no, we're not interested. I mean, already you see Malaysia has, has said that they're going to use the ringgit uh, with China and all of its major uh, trade partners because they want to deal in local currency. They're kind of hedging their way away from uh, the U.S. dollar with treasuries, which, you know, as Yan said, you know, a lot of the interest goes to uh, wealthy people. But the fact is something, the U.S. Treasury used to be the safest thing in the world or was regarded as such. Today, it is a toxic asset if you bought it four years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the interest rates uh, have basically wiped out a tremendous amount of your, uh, of your uh, principal. And if your only hope 
is that sometime down the line, uh, the Fed reverses, starts lowering rates, and then uh, your bonds are actually going to uh, start going up in value. But right now, um, you know, the world is facing huge economic headwinds. You know, we have long-term uh, investments are changing. We need long-term funds in order to help uh, developing countries become relevant. If they have huge amounts of people, but they have no education, no training, how are they going to join the economy? Uh, and there's a coming division of wealth based on who was going to own the intellectual property, who has the skills. So these are things that need to be uh, talked about. Unfortunately, uh, the IMF is not talking, and neither is the developed world. And that lack of coordination is going to hurt everybody, including mm -hmm. the developed world. It's not a question of uh, there'll be a bigger slice of pie for the developed world. It's going to go away, and there's going to be a tremendous wealth transfer that accompanies that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, also let's talk about the conflict between Israel and Palestinians. So what do you think is the impact of this conflict on the uh, global economy? Well, for one, I think it definitely adds to, you know, the human cost. Um, you know, thousands of lives have been, you know, um, gone. So that also has a lot of implications on, you know, both economies and um, people's livelihood. Uh, but more broadly, I think this regional conflicts could also have implications on, you know, global supply chain, and also energy prices. Um, we have seen the oil price has already risen um, by 4% in the past few days. Um, and according to the IMF, uh, if there is, you know, a 10% increase in the oil price, that's going to reduce the global growth rate by, you know, 0.15 percentage points and by and raise inflation by 0.4% in the following year. So we have yet to know exactly how much the um, oil supply is going to be affected by this, uh, because many of the you know large oil producers like you know um, the Saudis, the UAEs, or Kuwait or Iraq have yet um, really expressed um, you know what they're going to do about this conflict, and if this conflict is going to you know continue to wear on and and spread. So I think there's still a lot of unknowns um, as the IMF acknowledged. Um, so I think overall wars um, produce no winners um, and it definitely would create a lot more disruptions, a lot more suffering, a lot more uncertainty um, for the global economy going forward. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at China's Belt and Road Initiative over the past 10 years. What has been achieved? Stay with us. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China has published a white paper on the achievements of the Belt and Road Initiative over the past 10 years. One major purpose of this paper is to give the international community a better understanding of the value of the BRI. Our Zheng Chunying has more. <laughs> 
The report says that the initiative is paving the way towards shared development and prosperity as it advocates women cooperation and encourages economic integration, uh, interconnected development and the sharing of achievements. Uh, one of the biggest highlights is the initiative's contribution to promoting all-round connectivity including policy coordination, uh, infrastructure connectivity, unimpeded trade, financial integration and closer people-to-people -people ties. And specifically, it's says that under the BRI framework, Chinese and foreign partners have launched uh, 20 plus multilateral dialogue and cooperation mechanisms in professional domains such as railways, uh, ports, energy, finance, and so on. And basic connectivity over land, maritime, air, and cyberspace is in place with six corridors, six routes, and multiple countries and ports. And thanks to the increase in connectivity, uh, trade and investment has also been expanding steadily. From 2013 to 2022, the cumulative um, value of imports and exports between China and BRI partner countries reached over 19 trillion U.S. dollars. And that is an annual growth rate of over 6.4%. Besides, the BRI participating countries have also jointly promoted cooperation on industrial capacity, uh, expanded cooperation in traditional industries, including steel, uh, non-ferrous uh, metals, building materials, automobiles, and so on. And have also explored cooperation in some emerging industries, such as um, digital economy, new energy vehicles, artificial intelligence, 5G network, and so on. And that was Zheng Chunying reporting. So the third Belt and Road Forum for the International Cooperation, uh, marking the 10th anniversary of the BRI, will be held next week. So China has actually put forward the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and the Global Civilization Initiative. So yeah, how does the BRI align with these initiatives? And how do these efforts collectively contribute to China's vision of enhancing the global cooperation connectivity and mutual development. Right. So I think all these initiatives um, are very good complements um, with each other. So, for example, you know, take the BRI um, as example. Um, its aim is really to build infrastructures and also connectivities um, among different continents. And these BRI projects have already produced many grant projects that help countries to you know improve their infrastructure improve their transportation um, improve their energy production and so on and so forth um, and these projects they really rely on you know the uh, corporations among different countries so it really helped to um, in a way facilitate the kind of mutual political trust um, the industrial cooperation financial cooperation person-to-person -person exchanges um, and science and technology, you know, co-developments. And so all of these would benefit the, for example, Global Development Initiative, which is basically, you know, trying to accelerate and promote the um, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. Um, and other ones like the Global Security Initiative, um, obviously, as the white paper um, of the um, the, the earlier white paper um, about the you know global community of shared future has put it, you know if we don't have development, if we don't have cooperation, that's going going to produce a lot of risks, a lot of the uh, you know um, the, the the absence of security. 
So in a way, the BRI promotes development, promotes connectivity and cooperation, and that would definitely help to ensure, you know, the security at the regional and international uh, levels. And finally, I think the global civilization, um, um, you know, initiative really also build on this idea that you, we, we, we live in a world that have many different regions, many different religions, many different uh, value systems, um, very different political beliefs uh, and systems and so on and so forth. But we can overcome those differences and use those diversity as strengths and build, you know, inter uh, cultures into people exchanges, and that would help to produce co-prosperity um, and, and common, you know, sort of prosperity. So I think really all these initiatives, they complement with each other and they will reinforce each other and they would really help to produce this vision um, of the uh, global community of shared um, future. Mm -hmm. So Aina, so how has BRI benefited the participants? Could you give us some specific examples? Well, I mean, let's talk from a larger view. I mean, uh, it's been estimated by the Center for Economic Business Research that the BRAI will increase the world GDP by 7.1 trillion per annum by 2040. Uh, the benefits are, are widespread in, in terms of infrastructure. Uh, you, you have uh, numerous studies by the World Bank which have estimated that the BRI can boost trade flows in the 155 participating countries by 4.1%, as well as cutting the cost of global trade by 1.1 to 2.2%. This is very important because, you know, productivity in terms of, um, you know, this digital revolution is going to come from cutting costs when areas that you don't, you don't need legal, you don't need the accountant, you don't need all these bank fees and things like this. And this will be a boon to small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, you have thousands of miles of roads, railway. You look at some place like Indonesia, they have fast rail. I mean, their fast rail is better than that, what they have in Europe. And U.S. doesn't even have fast rail. That tells you something about how the world is changing and how developing and middle power uh, countries can now leapfrog ahead of developed countries. So, you know, if you want specific projects, 123 megawatt solar farm in South Africa is going to be constructed here. 15 milliwatt wind farm in Nambia, 600 milliwatt uh, solar farm in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, there's so many things that are going on and so much is needed. This this is low hanging fruit. You know, when I was saying earlier that less than 50 percent of Africa has, uh, you know, paved access to paved roads and electricity by simply having a paved road and electricity. Now they can have machinery. They can uh, get their uh, products to market instead of being uh, constrained to uh, local areas within walking or donkey distance. So it is a, an immense amount of change uh, and it's positive and mm -hmm. you don't see anything coming forward in real terms that, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative has been around for 10 years. It's proven itself. Over a trillion dollar investment by uh, China has leveraged $4 trillion in investments globally. Now, it's still a drop in the bucket in terms of what is needed in terms of infrastructure. But China is showing definitively that it is not about words, it's about actions. So when it comes with these global, uh, other um, global development, security, civilization uh, initiatives, as well as this kind of blueprint for um, shared values globally. What it's talking about is let's get on with the way the world is going to work in a multipolar uh, future.
Well, that was Ina Tangen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Yan Liang, professor of economics at Villamet University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.